Well, this past Friday was one of the most tragic days in the history of our country. By now, you all know that the Supreme Court of the United States legalized marriage between same-sex couples, and it is no longer a debate. It is the law of the land. For those of you that are younger, uh, probably you children and young people, uh, don't remember back in 1973 when the Supreme Court legalized abortion and made that the law of the land. And I think this decision is on par with that decision, um, just reminding us that, that our country is more corrupt and darker than it's ever been. And all the more reason for us to be salt and light. And uh, in the providence of God, here we are in the middle of a series on being salt of the earth. And according to my original preaching schedule, I was planning to preach something completely different than what I'm about to preach. But after last week's Supreme Court decision, I want to talk with you about the subject of same-sex marriage. Why? The question is, what, what now? How, how are we as Christians uh, and a church supposed to respond and, and I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that our response to same-sex marriage is a classic case study in what it looks like to be the salt of the earth and light, the light of the world. Wouldn't you agree? I can't think of a better issue to address uh, in this series on being salt and light than this issue of same-sex marriage. It is the classic case study of, of how we as Christians are to respond uh, to, a, to a morally corrupt and spiritually darkened world. And, and just if I could, just review with you where we've been so far. Last week, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 9, which says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are a people of God and had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then we said, okay, great. How does that, what does that look like? Okay, how are we to proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? And I said, there's an old expression that uh, we're to preach the gospel and use words if necessary. And that's basically what Peter said here, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We talked about the practical application there of proclaiming the excellencies of him. He doesn't immediately give you the gospel presentation. He doesn't say, here, this is what you share. This is the, the, the Romans road. This is the God-man Jesus you outline. No, he says, listen, live your life according to the gospel. It's your behavior that, that it's the radiance of your life that oftentimes attracts, that, that really will be the first thing that attracts attention more than the eloquence of your words. And so we, in that same context, if you just jump over to chapter 3, he gives us another application. What does this look like to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Well, look at chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, 
verse 15. It says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with what? Gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Does that sound familiar? It's basically what he said in verse 12. Keep your behavior, chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that nothing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Listen, last week's Supreme Court decision simply is the latest reminder that we are aliens and strangers in this world. This world is not our home. And while we're citizens of the United States of America, we are first and foremost Christians. And we need to remember that. And as Christians, what, what are we to do? God has called us, according to 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17, to humbly and boldly stand for Christ in this world that calls good evil and evil good and be willing to endure any persecution, i.e. slander, that may come our way. And that brings us back to our text, really, for this, that this whole series is based on, Matthew chapter 5. Go back there for a moment. Matthew chapter 5. And we've been zeroing in on verses 13 to 16. But again, let's look at the context again. This is at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that was ever preached on planet Earth by Jesus Christ himself. And it was a, really a, a, it was a, a, a message to his disciples, to his followers, basically saying this is, this is the, really a Christian manifesto. This is how Christians are supposed to live. If, you, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, this is the way I want you to live. And, and he begins this sermon by talking about how to be blessed as a follower of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, if you don't realize, everything he's Telling us to do as Christians is completely countercultural. To be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be gentle, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. These, these things are, are, are the exact opposite of the way that the world lives. And so Jesus expected his followers to lead countercultural lives to live completely different than the rest of the world, and in doing so, to expect to be persecuted as a natural result. Notice the last beatitude. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he goes on. He says, you are the salt of the earth. This is the context. 
But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So before he ever commanded his disciples, his followers, to be salt and light, he said, hey, just want to warn you, it's going to result in you being persecuted. There's no way that you can be salt in a corrupt world and light in a dark, salt on a dark earth and light in a dark world and not get persecuted, not get pushed back. It's, it's, it's impossible. And so we need to understand that up until this point in our nation's history, Christians and, and the church of Jesus Christ have enjoyed unprecedented religious liberties. I mean, this is an amazing privilege that we can be here tonight with our Bibles open and worshiping freely and not be afraid of the police coming and shutting us down, radical Muslims coming in and shooting up this place and killing all of us. We don't necessarily fear that because we've had this amazing freedom of religion in our country. And yet this is rapidly changing, and I think the new normal may include persecution, which will be new to all of us. We, we pray for the persecuted church, and we always talk about these other countries and these other places, right? Well, I think there's going to be believers in other parts of the world starting to pray for America and the persecution that we are going to begin to experience. You say, what are you talking about? Well, uh, pastors, for example, in, in Sweden... And Canada, where gay marriages have been legal for a number of years now, have actually been put in jail for speaking out against homosexuality. There may come a day in the near future when I, when I will be arrested for preaching a message like I'm preaching tonight. It could happen. We know there's already been Christians in the wedding industry who have been sued for not baking cakes or making flower arrangements or selling rings to same-sex couples, right? We've all seen that in the news. And I think it's only a matter of time until they come after churches who have the audacity to publicly oppose same-sex marriages. This is audacious in the world's eyes to get up and speak out against this Supreme Court decision. Right? Because everybody's so happy about it, and hey, we should just go along with it, and this is, just the, this is our country, and so who are you? Who are you to stand up and say that's wrong? And I'm convinced that the gay and transgender lobby groups like GLAAD and the ACLU will increasingly use this issue as a big stick just to beat Christians and, and the church and attempt to force us to accept the gay lifestyle or at least to remain silent about it. They just want to shut us up. And so this isn't an issue that we can just ignore and go, well, you know what? You know, it's not that big of a deal. Listen, we are no longer immune to the aggressive nature of the homosexual agenda. How do you think it got to the Supreme Court and they made a decision? Nine guys dictated for the entire country. How do you think that happened? 
There's a small minority of very vocal, legal-acting people that made it their life's goal to see this happen. And so we need to be prepared to face this issue with confidence in the sovereignty of God and the authority of Scripture. And while a law may have changed last Friday, God and His Word didn't change. And so we need to lovingly confront the culture with the unchanging standard of Scripture and the life-changing truth of the gospel. Some Christians, some churches have merely capitulated to this trend toward tolerance and acceptance of, of this whole same-sex agenda and homosexuality and in an effort to promote love and, and unity, they gladly welcome practicing homosexuals as members of their churches. They even ordain homosexual pastors and worship leaders who, are, who, who are obviously are more than willing to marry homosexuals. This is not just something that's happening in you know, liberal cities, uh, liberal parts of our country. That's happening in our own town. In, in churches in our area, that's happening. It has been happening. There's a church up in Dallas called the Cathedral of Hope. Some of you may have heard of it. It's the largest gay church in the world. It's got over 4,000 members. It's pastored by a lesbian. And they basically reinterpret the scriptures to justify their sinful lifestyle. Uh, the former pastor was a homosexual as well as uh, as well as this, the present pastor, he wrote a best-selling book entitled Holy Homosexuals. The truth about being gay or lesbian and Christian. And uh, he, he recently updated the book and it's called Gay by God. How to be lesbian or gay and Christian. And so just the titles themselves beg the question, is it possible to be a homosexual and a Christian? Is there such a thing as a gay Christian? There's a, probably the most popular book that's been in the news and been being promoted even on Christian websites and, and Christian booksellers. It's called God and the Gay Christian, The Biblical Case in Support of Same-Sex Relationships. It's by a guy named Matthew Vines. He's a 25-year-old guy. And this is, what, this is how the book is promoted. Not only is it a compelling interpretation of key biblical text about same-sex relations, it is also the story of a young man navigating relationships with his family, his hometown church, and the Christian church at large as he expresses what it means to be a faithful gay Christian. And here's a young man who grew up in the church and uh, finally came out and said, you know what, I've always been gay and I just I was too embarrassed to admit it, and, and now I'm going to show you from Scripture uh, where, uh, where we've misinterpreted the scriptures all these years, and, and it's okay to be gay. And so like so many other so-called Christian homosexuals, he very cleverly interprets or reinterprets passages in the Bible that clearly condemn homosexuality. But I think anyone with even a, a low level of biblical discernment, they're able to see how, how his arguments are completely irrational and are nothing but smoke screens to cover his sin. I mean, just, just reading through articles and titles and books like this just infuriate me at, at how fast and loose homosexuals 
play with the scriptures and how they're leading so many people astray from the truth. When I was in South Africa, I got a, South Africa, I got an advertisement for the Queen James Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. You can just imagine what that is. This is, this is the description on Amazon. You ready? The Queen James Bible is based on the King James Bible and is edited to prevent homophobic misinterpretation. Anti-LGBT Bible interpretations commonly cite only eight verses in the Bible that they interpret to mean homosexuality is a sin. Eight verses in a book of thousands. The Queen James Bible seeks to resolve interpretive ambiguity in the Bible as it pertains to homosexuality. I didn't know there was ambiguity, but apparently they think there is. We edited those eight verses in a way that makes homophobic interpretations impossible. Oh, thank you (laughs) for basically retranslating the scriptures to make it say what you want it to say and to make it impossible to, 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 to have it say what you don't want it to say. It's, it went on. It says, the Queen James Bible is a big, fabulous Bible. And then this was the saddest part. You can't choose your sexuality, but now you can choose your Bible. You can't choose your sexuality, right? Because it's hereditary. It's not a choice. It's not a sinful decision that you make. No, you can't choose your sexuality, but you can choose your Bible. I mean, this is just the... The, the, the crazy world in which we live. And, and so it's easy to see why some Christians and churches respond to homosexuality with great anger and, and hostility. I'm sure you've all heard of that guy named Fred Phelps. He died last year. Um, he was a pastor of Westboro Baptist Church, and, 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 and that church takes the concept of a church being known for what it's against to a whole new level. I, I, I've, always, I've never wanted to be the church that was known for what we're against, but, but the church that's known for what we're for. You understand? And some churches are like, you know what they're against. That's all you know about is what they're against. And, and, and this, is, this church is just off the charts to a new level. Their website is not wbc.com or westboro.com or westborobaptistchurch.com. You know what their website is? Godhatesfags.com. That's their church's website. And so this church believes and preaches that all the bad things that happen in our country is God pouring out his wrath on us for condoning homosexuality. 9-11, all the soldiers that we've lost in all the wars in recent years, all the school shootings that happen, all the result of God's judgment and God's wrath because we embrace homosexuality. And so they're the ones that show up at the funerals of soldiers and, and, say, and they have signs that says, God loves dead soldiers. Um, it's just crazy. And so when it comes to how we respond as, as Christians and as a church to the issue of homosexuality, these are the two extremes to avoid. Okay, you've got two extremes. You've got compassionate toleration or, or maybe a, just basically accommodation. That's the churches that are just embracing it. Hey, it's okay. Let's, you can be a member and you can be a pastor and we'll marry you. And, and that's just kind of toleration, accommodation. But then the other end of the spectrum is vicious, obnoxious condemnation. By the way, we already saw 
that in our series. In the first week, we looked at a guy named who? Jonah. Jonah was taking more of the Westboro Baptist Church approach to the Ninevites. He, he, wanted them, he wanted God to toast him. But what? These are our enemies, God. You, you, you want me to tell them they, that, that if they repent, you'll, you'll, you'll relent and you'll forgive them? He didn't, he didn't want anything to do with it. He wanted God to destroy them. That's the Jonah syndrome. That's the, the, we talked about having a lack of compassion for lost people. And God is a compassionate God and he loves these people and he wants to rescue these people from their life of sin. We said the opposite of Jonah was who? Jesus. Where Jonah failed, Jesus succeeded. And we looked at Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, if you remember, and, and this is what it says in, in, in Matthew 9, 36, seeing the people, Jesus felt irritated, frustrated. He was angry. He wanted to call fire down from heaven. No, what does it say? Seeing the people, he felt what? compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That convicts me because you know what? We've all been exposed in the last four days or five days to all these images in the newspaper, on the internet, of all all these same-sex couples rejoicing and hugging and kissing. and, And if you're like me, I'm sitting there going, that is absolutely disgusting. That just makes me sick to my stomach. Instead of, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm confessing to you, I didn't, I didn't look at those pictures and I wasn't feeling compassionate. I wasn't looking at these people through the eyes of Jesus saying, these people are distressed. They're dispirited. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They, they have no clue. Why would, we, why, why would we be surprised? Why is this so shocking? They don't know Jesus. And so we need to have compassion on them. And so I want to suggest what, what I believe to be an uncompromisingly biblical response that avoids the two extremes of toleration and condemnation. Okay? We want to avoid those two extremes. What is it? it it's, it's Christ-like, compassionate confrontation. It's Christ-like, compassionate confrontation. What I mean by that is rather than, than just readily condoning the sin of homosexuality or, or radically condemning it, we need to lovingly confront it. And as a church, we must never allow practicing homosexuals to, to join our church or be placed in positions of leadership in our church, but we should cultivate an atmosphere where homosexuals feel welcome to attend our church and, 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 and a place they can hear the good news of the gospel that, that God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to set people free from a life of sin and that they can be forgiven for their sin if they're willing to repent and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I think that's the same approach we need to take as individuals. We should never be mean to homosexuals or treat them with disgust or, or disdain or avoid them. I guarantee you there are some Christians after, when they heard about the, 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 um, the decision on Friday, they, they're like, you know what? We're moving further out into the country. We're, we're going to build the walls higher. We're going to run deeper into the cave. 
We're going to get as far away from these wicked people as possible. Is that what Jesus prayed when, he, when it says he felt compassion? They were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So disciples, run, run for your lives. Get out, get as far away as you can. Go be a prepper out somewhere in the woods, you know. What do you say? No, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would what? Send harvest. This is a ripe field for harvest. I was so blessed by one of our members who I had a chance to talk to on, on, uh, on, on Friday and, and after this decision. And, and, and they just said, you know, when I, I was watching the news, and I, she, she said, I, I just cried. I just cried. I said, you know, I felt like crying too. But she said, I, I just cried. And I, I, I was watching the news. I was looking at my little kids thinking, Lord, they're growing up in this, in this wicked world. And it's going to be way worse when they're my age. But what a great opportunity. And this was the pr- thought process. What a great opportunity for them to stand out for Christ. Instead of, oh, let me take my little chicks and hide them off somewhere and protect them from this big, bad world. I want to train and equip them to go out and be salt and light in this world. And so we need to humbly and graciously challenge people with the truth of Scripture that clearly condemns homosexuality and promises eternal damnation for all those who practice it, but eternal salvation for those who repent of it. That's good news. Now listen, I, I want to be sensitive to the fact tonight that this is, for some of you, this is not a theoretical or even theological discussion. I mean, this hits home. This is very personal to some of you because you have family members who've chosen a homosexual lifestyle. And it just pains you. It grieves your heart. And you've had to make some difficult decisions about how and when and if you even interact with them at all. And this is just heartbreaking to even have to think about because, it's, it's, it's Im- because of the impact it's had on your family. I also want to be sensitive to the fact that there may be people here tonight who struggle with homosexual desires, which, by the way, are not unlike other sinful tendencies and temptations. There's people with greedy desires here tonight and worrisome and jealousy and gossiping and slandering and people that struggle with pride and anger and gluttony and what does the scripture say? First Corinthians 10, 12, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so you can endure it. So all that to say, we need to be careful not to single out homosexuality as if it's a a worse sin than any other sin and that there's a hotter place in hell for homosexuals. And what may be repulsive to you may be a serious temptation to someone else. We all don't struggle with the same sins, but we are all sinners. And we should all consider ourselves the worst sinners we know. That was Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He was the chief of sinners, the foremost 
of sinners. This is the Apostle Paul. And he knew he was the worst sinner he knew. And I think we need to have that same mindset, that same heart, because that will keep us from being quick to judge others and, and focus more on their sin than our own sin. Trying to take the speck out of everybody else's eye when we've got a big old log in our own eye and, or to self-righteously cast stones at, at other people, like the Pharisees when they caught the woman in adultery. And Jesus confronted them and said, hey, fine, you want to kill her? Let, the, let, let whoever doesn't have any sin in her life... You throw the first stone. I was joking with my wife the other day. We were down in the city, coming back from the medical center. We had an appointment for Jacob's diabetes, and we were driving out of the medical center. It's kind of crazy down there in the traffic, you know? You've been down there, right? And so we're driving along, and, 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 and all of a sudden, this car in front of us kind of pulls off like it's going to go down this road, and then jerks right back in front of us. And I'm like, whoa! And, and, and Kelly's like, oh, man, honk at him, you know? She, she always tells me when somebody does something stupid, honk at him. I'm like, what are you talking about? And see, Kelly, she's, she, she thinks they need to know that was stupid. You, you shouldn't have done that. Okay, you need to think next time, you know? And I always joke with her. I say, honey, I, I, I've done that before. I've done that very same thing. In fact, I've done worse than that. And I've gotten honked at. I've gotten flipped off. I've got lots of things I've done. And I, I didn't do it intentionally. It was just like, oh, I have the wrong. I've been going down the wrong way streets. And people going, what are you doing, right? And so the point is, I'm the worst driver I know. Seriously, I'm the worst driver I know. And, and, and so I was joking with Kelly. I said, see, that's the difference. You're self-righteous. <laughs> you, you, you think you're such a good driver, right? And, and, and so, see, you, that's why you're going around honking at everybody. And, and I'm, like, I'm like, hey, I'm not honking because I, I know, I've, hey, I've done that and worse, right? I'm just kidding with you, babe. That's just... She, she is a good driver, though. Um, ask her after tonight how we used to race the church on uh, Sunday night when we were students of the Master's Cause, my roommate and his Trans Am, and, uh, and, and her and her little Honda Accord hatchback. She was crazy, I'll just tell you that. You'd think a, you'd think a, you'd think a Trans Am would be, the, would be the Honda Accord hatchback, but when you've got, cra- you got a crazy college girl behind the wheel, you just get out of the way. Let's just say that. But, but the, you know, another, uh, maybe a, a more serious example. I'll never forget going to a local restaurant after church with a couple, a uh, family in, in the church, and, and here we were, and, and we'd invite them to lunch, and there we were sitting there, and this, this, this waitress comes up, and, and immediately the guys at the table were like, because she was hanging out all over the place. And, and I was so grateful for the sweet spirit of this couple, because I'm thinking, oh, great, you know, this, <laughs> I invite these people to lunch, and here's our waitress, and, you know, it was so sweet, we were able to talk about, you know what, why should that shock us? She, if, if, she's just basically saying, I need Jesus, that's all she's saying, and, and, and you can't, she's not going to change her shirt until God changes her heart, right? So why make the issue about the shirt, make it about her, her heart and her need for Jesus, and we, we, lose, we lose sight of that. We just get so offended by that external thing. And we realize, hey, this is not about she needs to change her shirt. She need, God needs to change her heart. Again, that was all background here. Let, let, let me just, just quickly, if I could tonight, look with you at what the Bible says about the sin of homosexuality. And I just want to quickly, 
just look through some of the main passages in both the Old and New Testaments that either directly or indirectly relate to this topic of homosexuality. And I, I think you know, we've got to begin in, in the book of Genesis. That's where a biblical view of homosexuality begins by understanding God's original design for creation and marriage and family. Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I'm in Genesis 1:28 now. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I guess we could just start by saying that homosexuals cannot fulfill this command. They cannot be fruitful and multiply. They cannot procreate. It is impossible for them to reproduce. And without reproduction, you have no civilization. And so if you were to take this whole same-sex marriage to its logical conclusion, mankind would become what? Extinct. It destroys the basic building block of society. And then, of course, you've got Genesis chapter 2. He expands on this. Uh, the Lord said it's not good for a man to be alone, verse 18. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And, and you know the story that, that, that uh, there was Adam, and he was seeing uh, the, the, the male-female animals coming up to him, and he was naming Mr. and Mrs. Hippo, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Honey Badger, and, and he's got, you know, he's got uh, you know, male-female, and he's like, hey, what's up with that? I, there, there's no counterpart for me. I'm a male, there's no female. Everyone else has a, every other guy has a mate, I don't. And so we know God put him to sleep, took a rib, verse 22, God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become, what? One flesh. And so here's just a basic understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood. God made two distinct sexes that would complement and complete each other. Not two of the same thing, but two different parts that are fit to fit together perfectly. It's, it's a creative counterpart. I think it's interesting, even in the, in the plumbing and electrical industry, they have male and female Parts, you talk about, yeah, I need a male end and a female end, right? If you guys are in that line of work, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so it's just basic common sense that, that men match up with women, not with other men. And women match up with men, not with other women. I mean, physically and anatomically, it is a no-brainer. And I think it's interesting that in order to compensate for the obvious mismatch in a homosexual relationship, homosexual couples usually try to take or look or act the part. You see two gay guys and one plays the male role, the other the female role. Or when it's lesbians, one looks like a girl and one dresses like the guy to look more masculine. It's just interesting to me. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, says, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And, and this is so becoming so popular in, 
in today's culture, to blur the differences between the sexes. Uh, even down here in Houston, right, there was that issue about having unisex bathrooms. That it doesn't matter. If you think you're a woman, you're a guy who thinks he's a woman, you can go in any bathroom you want. And they tried to get that law passed, and some pastors stood up and said, that's ridiculous, and they preached some messages against it, and the law didn't get passed. And next thing you know, the mayor is saying, hey, I want all your sermons. Anything you ever preached about homosexuality against this thing, I want them. And we all know how that went. We, 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 we see more and more this, this androgyny, this, this, is that a guy or a girl? I can't tell. That used to be rare to, to see someone you weren't sure, is that a guy or a girl? But it's, it's becoming more and more common. I mean, this has been shoved down our throat with the whole Caitlyn Jenner thing. And then, even more recently than that, Miley Cyrus, sweet little Hannah Montana, right? She came out of the news and said, I am gender fluid. Quote, I'm gender fluid. She said, I'm equal. This is a quote. I'm even. And this is what she said. It has nothing to do with any parts of me or how I dress or how I look. It's literally just how I feel. So that's judges. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, right? So the point is, God condemns homosexuality because it's a satanic attempt to corrupt and distort and pervert God's normal, natural design for human relationships, a design that involves the complementary relationship between a man and a woman. And you look at all the verses in both the Old and New Testaments about marriage, they always mention a husband and wife. Proverbs chapter 5, this book, the Song of Solomon, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 3, they, they all reference a husband and a wife, a male and a female. Nowhere do you ever see a male and a male, a woman and a woman. Well, moving on through Genesis, obviously you've got to stop at Genesis 18 and look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 18, a couple angels came to see Abraham and announced the fact that he was going to have a son, Isaac, and before they left... They shared some bad news with him about where his nephew Lot was living and what was going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Genesis eighteen sixteen. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him, him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken uh, what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. In other words, God's saying, I- I've heard about this Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, he knew about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's, he's speaking in terms that we can understand. He said, I've, I've heard that, there's, that their sin is indeed great. Their sin is exceedingly grave. Well, you say, well, well, what was their sin? Well, check out what happens in verse 19 when these two angels go down there. 
Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, no, 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 no. But we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly so that they turned aside him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Say, why, why, didn't, why was Lot not okay with just letting them sleep out in the, in the town green, if you will? Well, we find out really quick. Verse 4, before they lay down, in other words, before they went to bed, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. This wasn't just a few guys. This wasn't just a minority. This was like the, all the guys in town. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Wasn't talking about, hey, we want to take them to Starbucks and buy them something, okay? But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relationships with men. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like, only to do nothing to these men inasmuch as they've come under the shelter of my roof. And this just shows how corrupt Lot had become by living in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's really going to give up his daughters to be raped. Verse 9, but they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien. You're an alien, and already you're acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. In other words, they were going to sodomize Lot. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. So you just see this example of homosexual lust. Crazy. These guys were out of control. And then you know the rest of the story. Verse 24 then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. I mean, completely destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. I heard someone say one time that if God does not judge the United States of America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because we are on the same track. There are those who would reinterpret what we just read, that the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, the reason why God sent down fire and brimstone was not homosexuality, it was a lack of hospitality. I'm not making that up. That's one of the ways they reinterpret. Well, they just weren't hospitable. So that's why God destroyed them. Look at Leviticus, just, again, working our way through the Old Testament Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus 8, chapter 18, verse 22, Leviticus 18, this is the law, the, the law, the Jewish law here, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female, it is an abomination. And then chapter 20, verse 13, if there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act that would surely be put to death. I think we can 
conclude from those verses that God hates homosexuality. It disgusts him. He views it as a sin worthy of death. And oh, by the way, he feels the same about adultery. That if you, I could read other verses, like in verse 9, for example. Verse 10, excuse me, if there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulterer shall surely be put to death. So God puts adultery and homosexuality in the same category. In fact, he even puts rebellion against your parents in the same category. Look at verse 9. If there is anyone who curses his father or mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood guiltiness is upon him. So again, there's not certain degrees of sin here. God feels the same. When you disobey your parents, when you rebel against your parents, that's disgusting to God too. In the Old Testament, you'd be taken out and stoned. By the way, there'd be a lot more obedient children if that was still being practiced today. And guess what? There would be less adultery and there'd be less homosexuality. If there were swift judgment. It would curb these things. Now, while we're no no longer under obligation to abide by the dietary laws and the ceremonial aspects of the law, we we are still bound by the moral aspects of the law. We know that from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. And then, of course, we have to look at Romans 1. Turn over to Romans 1. We, we've looked at this passage many times before, but we know Romans 1 is the clearest, profoundest description of the coming wrath of God anywhere in Scripture. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. In other words, everyone knows there's a God. God's made it evident in their, through creation and through their conscience, and, and, and yet they choose to not honor God. They don't give God thanks. And, and in, in fact, in their foolishness, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Verse 23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the image for an image in the form of a corruptible man and a birds and a four-footed animals and, and, and crawling creatures. And so basically what he's describing there in verses 18 to 23 is how man has rebelled against God. And then he goes on, Paul goes on to talk about how, how, how God will respond to man's rebellion by retribution or judgment. And notice how he describes this in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over. God's basically saying, hey, you don't want to honor me. You don't want to give me thanks. You don't want to acknowledge me. You don't want to obey me. You don't want to worship me. You don't want to serve me. I'm just going to give you over to yourself. I'm just going to give you over to your sin. You keep suppressing the truth of me because of your unrighteousness. 
In other words, you don't want to acknowledge me because then you'd have to stop sinning. Then you can just have at it. Sin more. So God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So God gave people over to immorality is basically what he's saying there. But notice that's not all. For this reason, God gave them over. There's that same line. A second time, God gave them over. What does he give them over to this time? To degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in a desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their person, their own persons the due penalty of their error. So God gives people over to their immorality, and then he gives them over to homosexuality, and then he says it a third time. Notice verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's what the Supreme Court just did. And that's what our president just did. He gave hearty approval to same-sex marriages. So you've got immorality leading to homosexuality, leading to irrationality or insanity. And so we're seeing this, 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 this reprobate mind that Paul described here, this depraved mind, at every level of leadership in our country. We see it in the Supreme Court. We see it in the president. uh, I mean, when when the the president of the United States lights up his house with rainbow colors, on the same day that he just sang Amazing Grace at some church, and and then tweeted out that, 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 that he wants God to continue to bless and shed his grace on the United States of America as a result of the Supreme Court decision... That makes absolutely no what? Sense. It's irrational. And so we're just watching. We've got a front row seat to Romans 1 being played out in our country. That's a scary, sad thing. Let me just read a couple more verses for you in the, in the New Testament. Look at Galatians 5, 5.19. Galatians 5.19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, i.e. sin. Okay, I'm going to give you a list of sin here. Paul says, immorality, impurity, sensuality, Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, 
envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, and this is the part to listen to, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if this is the habitual pattern of your life, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. Listen to what it says, Ephesians 5.5. Paul said the same thing. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What is that saying? If you're a practicing adulterer, if you're a practicing homosexual, you're not going to go to heaven. Why? Because you're not a Christian. And then lastly, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. If that wasn't specific enough, listen to this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't be fooled. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, or homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, these verses make it so clear that homosexuality is incompatible with Christianity. There's no such thing as a gay Christian. Just because you have homosexual desires doesn't mean you're a homosexual. Just because you have adulterous desires doesn't necessarily mean you're an adulterer. You don't have to act on these things. And unfortunately, we've got a generation of people that are just like, you know what, I'm a homosexual. I didn't choose to be this way. God hardwired me this way. I can't change. You don't know how hard I've tried. This has moved out of the realm of preference, sexual preference, to sexual predetermination predisposition. There's nothing we can do about it. That's just the way these people are. It's not just their preference, it's their predisposition. And society would have us believe that that sexual orientation is determined by a combination of yet unknown pre- and post-natal influences, you know, your nature and your nurture, how you were raised, and, and that it's dangerous and inappropriate to tell a homosexual that he or she could or should attempt to change his or her sexual orientation. Don't do that. That that could be dangerous. And so they say this is hereditary. This is a a condition caused by some chemical or biological predisposition. Uh, they, They have the gay gene. It's a disease. It's a disorder. And and so news media cites conclusive studies, but there is no concrete scientific evidence with any consensus. It's a cultural lie that robs people of hope. Because when you understand that homosexuality is a sinful choice, guess what? There's hope for change. There's hope in the goodness and the grace of God. He's in the business of setting captives free, of cleansing people from sin. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so what, you need to open up. And, 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 and come clean and confess it as sin, 
according to what the scripture says, what the scripture calls it, and plead with God to forgive you, to cleanse you, to save you, to cause you to be born again, and give you the Holy Spirit who makes it possible to break the habit patterns of homosexuality. And yes, you may have to deal with memories and, 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 and some habits that you've developed over the years and, and, and there still may be consequences of your sin, but you can have the joy and the peace of knowing that your sin is forgiven and that you have a safe haven in the local church. I hope you're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because right after, Paul, in no uncertain terms, says, listen, if you're a homosexual, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice verse 11, such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Listen, there were former homosexuals in the church of Corinth. There was no more, no more immoral city in the ancient world than Corinth. In fact, the word to Corinthianize was synonymous with to, to fornicate. That, that's how evil that city was. And so you had former homosexuals sitting in the church hearing this letter read from the Apostle Paul. He says, hey, guess what? Such were some of you. But you're not that way anymore. You're not anymore. And you guess what? You've been cleansed. You've been washed. You've been forgiven. And you have the hope of heaven. And guess what? There may be former homosexuals in this church. There's former homosexuals in a lot of faithful biblical churches around the country, around the world. And they sit there with regenerated hearts, and they're praising their Savior along with former adulterers and fornicators and idolaters and thieves and coveters and drunkards and revilers and swindlers. Guess what? Welcome to the club. We're a bunch of wicked sinners that have been saved by the grace of God. Such were some of you. Such was I. And so how are we to respond to the same-sex marriage issue? If our diagnosis of this issue is in line with Romans 1, then we also need to follow the prescription found in Romans 1. Turn back there as we close. Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Love this. This is, this is what comes before that description of the wrath of God. This is the context. Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Paul said, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. <laughs> that that kind of covers it all, doesn't it? This is barbaric. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and even to the barbarians, the crazy people out there that they're barbaric. They're not even human, both to the wise and even to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So I'm under obligation to preach the gospel. And I'm not just under obligation. I'm eager to preach the gospel. I'm excited to preach the gospel. Why? For I am not, what? Ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so there we have our answer 
to how we should respond to this same-sex marriage issue. We must unashamedly but lovingly confront homosexuals with the truth of the gospel, which warns of eternal damnation for all who practice homosexuality, but at the same time promises forgiveness and eternal salvation for all who repent of it and embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. See, the real issue is not being on the right side of history, but being on the right side of eternity. That's what matters. Let me close with a quote from an article I read today. U.S. Supreme Court legalizes same-sex marriage. Now what? This is the now what. You ready? God's agenda has always been the spread of the gospel. And that has happened in the face of worse persecution than anyone in America has faced. Even though we are rightly distressed that the government has officially embraced an unbiblical stance on this issue Christians still have hope that the gospel will transform people even in the midst of a corrupt culture. And so, as Paul said to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, we are to prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. Holding fast the word of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity just to talk about this very sensitive issue. Thank you that we don't have to just uh, rely on our opinion, our perspective on what the news media is saying, uh, what the pundits are suggesting. Father, that we have a trustworthy source of truth and, and, and we want to believe what your word says and not all the, the static that we hear around us. Lord, thank you for giving us clarity on this issue in, in Scripture. There's no ambiguity at all. It's very, very clear, unquestionably clear. And I pray that we would learn how to engage uh, this corrupt, dark culture with the truth of the gospel. And, and rather than just sitting in our living rooms, watching news and, and, and looking at our iPads, being disgusted by all this, Lord, that our hearts would be filled with compassion and it would make us want to just run out into the culture with the truth of the gospel, with the hope of the gospel and engage the culture and uh, that we would see many, Lord, in the homosexual uh, culture living that lifestyle, Lord, saved and redeemed and, and in, in local churches, Lord, um, rejoicing in, in your goodness and grace in their lives. And so, Lord, help us to have this, this, this heart of Christ, Lord, that we would see all that we're seeing through his eyes, that we would have compassion and we would be broken and, uh, and that we would want to, to reach lost people with the gospel, we pray. Help us to be the salt of the earth and the light to this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.